1: discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On
0: these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we are joined by Jillian McAllister. Jillian is the author of six Sunday Times bestsellers, including the Richard and Judy book club pick, That Night wrong place wrong time is her seventh novel and lucky number seven we are so excited to talk about this this book
1: i can't gush about it enough it's like nothing i've ever read before
2: that's so nice to hear
1: corinne finished before i did and i started and she would never send me a text that would reveal anything about the ending nor would we ever discuss that but I have to read to you what she wrote me. I swear it changed my life slash brain. <laughs> I have no words. I am gobsmacked utterly. I mean this is these are the messages I was wow. receiving. I'm like, oh God, I have to I gotta get to the end. She doesn't wow. usually gush quite that hard, so it definitely had a major impact broke her yeah. brain. I think you said it broke your brain in the best possible way.
0: Rosie Walsh was the one who recommended it to us months ago and she said it's like nothing she had ever read before and I I get it now I get it now and also Lisa Jewell who we've had on the the podcast said one of the best books she's ever read this is not hyperbole (laughs) this is true so tell us a little bit about wrong place wrong time
2: (laughs) wow I'm not sure I can follow up that intro I'm still got goosebumps (laughs) so wrong place wrong time is a time loop thriller but instead of repeating the day the protagonist goes backwards so she witnesses a murder her son murders a stranger outside their house and she wakes up on what she thinks is the next day but it's actually yesterday and then the next time she sleeps she wakes up and it's the day before that and the conceit of it is that she has to get to the inception of when he decides to commit this crime and stop it it's
0: such a strong hook. I, I knew it from the start that this would be good, but your execution is yeah. even better than that incredible hook.
2: Mm. I'm just going to embarrass you. The whole I worried time. about <laughs> writing it really, because I think when you have a big hook, you can be like style and no substance. And I really wanted to just knock it out of the park. But I think it's almost like a poison chalice having a hook like that because the expectations are really high.
1: Well, you definitely executed. That's for (laughs) sure. So we focus on complicated women on this podcast. So we like to start with the protagonist and so with Jen, she seems to us the perfect person to carry us through this story. She's a lawyer, a wife, a mother. And we first meet her, as you said, when she's witnessed something no human being would ever want to witness. How did you know Jen was the one and what inspired her or maybe any challenges you faced when writing her? Because I, I understand that there were some.
2: Yeah, there definitely were. Because of the structure of it, n- none of her interactions carry over into the next day. So she doesn't really interact with anyone a lot. She, it's like a kind of castaway of a novel. She is alone a lot and she's thinking a lot. And I knew she needed to be compelling so I, I definitely had a draft where she was kind of lazy and she couldn't be bothered to to find the, the, the reason why. And she sort of felt like ill-equipped to solve a mystery. And I kind of liked that vibe because it's not what you would expect. But she needed to have a more forensic quality to her brain, really. And it came to me when I was watching a, a Christmas advert, so about 18 months ago here, and... It said something like, I go to the gym just to say I've been, but I actually sit in the sauna. <laughs> and I just thought there's a character in that because there's actually so much in that sentence. Like you ha- you feel you have to go in order to keep some pretense up. So you obviously feel a degree of shame about who you are, but then you actually still can't really be bothered to sit in the gym. So you just go in the sauna. Like I just, it really spoke to me and I used that sentence to model the character of Jen, who is, she's kind of jaded by life and she feels like she's not a very good lawyer. She feels like she's not a very good mother. She blames herself completely for what her son does. And that's really her sort of narrative arc is whether that, whether it is to do with how she's parented him or not. But yeah, I just, I think complicated women are so compelling and we all are them. And society is finally catching up that it's okay to have unlikable characters or complicated characters or not Pollyanna-ish heroines and I, I absolutely needed her to sort of carry that narrative for me.
0: I love that Jim. <laughs> she can't let go and not go but then yeah. she can't, she can't <laughs> do the thing either. That yeah is, I know and yeah. aren't we
2: all kind of like that in a way? Uh, yeah <laughs> yes,
0: absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this book is undoubtedly a page turner thriller but it also has so much heart to it. The emotional depth comes from the truth and the clarity around motherhood. The good parts, the bad parts, what it gives to mothers and what it takes away. Before I had children, I was not not naive, but I was wrong about everything I thought I knew. And I really thought I knew a lot because I was one of those people that Wanted children from a very young age. I babysat, I taught, I was around young children, and that gave me a false sense of kind of understanding or knowledge. But then after I had children, oh, that was a rude awakening. I felt so much of what Jen goes through. But I could never have articulated it the way you do, even with a decade of motherhood under my belt. So it's it seems to be the area that I have desire and drive around, but zero clarity. And I guess probably everybody has that area of their life. But I'd love to read a little bit, if that's okay with you, about Jen talking about motherhood. She says, nobody had warned her of the car crash that was labor. At one point, she had been sure she was going to die. And that conviction never really left her, even after she was fine. She couldn't believe women went through that, that they chose to do it again and again. And later, Jen can see that she was susceptible to wanting it all. A woman working in a job that took as much as you were able to give. Having repressed father, vulnerable to people's judgment, to reading huge amounts into the small things people say. That vein of inadequacy running through her that led her to say yes to banal networking events and taking on more cases than she could realistically run led in parenthood to misery. Like all disasters, it ebbed away, and the love bloomed big and beautiful when Todd started to do things, to sit up and talk, to smear bourbon biscuits over his entire head. And until recently, when his friends had descended into teenage sullenness, he hadn't, still full of puns and laughs of facts just for her. At the beginning, the love she had felt for him had been eclipsed by how hard it had been in the early days, and it wasn't any longer. That was all, an explanation as big and as small as that. I mean, so you could have written this book very action-packed, moving around scene to scene without this kind of emotional depth. Why did you want to dive into that for Jen's journey in motherhood? And what did you draw on to get it so right?
2: Hmm. Well, I read a lot of thrillers that do just have somebody in chapter one running. And I, as a reader, always think, don't know who they are though and that kind of mindless peril it just doesn't really do it for me and I just think if I were her he's an only child she didn't want to have another child what would I think if that was me and there's no shame in in any of that Jen found motherhood really really hard and what I try to do is deconstruct the shame around that But to do that, I had to go into her psyche about what would she really think about her choices and decisions to work a lot, for example. And um, I'm lucky enough to have very candid friendships with women my age who, they really tell me how it is, like not the kind of Insta mum kind of gloss Mm. on it, but the real nitty gritty of this is how it feels to hold a baby and love it unconditionally but also this is how it feels when you've got a toddler and they just keep throwing the rain cover off their <laughs> strollers you would say they're <laughs> like you're gonna explode but you still really love yes. them yeah and yeah I kind of drew on it's kind of a form of people watching I think my mm-hmm. sort of obsession with the parents among us <laughs>
0: yeah yeah but let me tell you it's it you really have a gift for that. You must listen with such, you know, clarity because I know that, like I said, even as a mother, I could not articulate what you wrote so beautifully, such truth and clarity there. So it, yeah. it's, it's really next. Yeah.
2: I wonder if it's because I have some distance maybe that I'm able yes. to do that. Uh, yes. maybe, maybe yeah. but maybe.
1: it felt like you said that you were in, in my psyche, I can tell you because... Well. If this had happened to me, my if I was Jen in that scenario as a very busy working lawyer, mother, podcaster, I absolutely would do what she did, which is yeah. if I had to go back and live those days, I would. I would see all the things I missed, all the ways I was distracted. You said at one point, you know, that motherhood for her, one of the hardest things was this vast reduction in time.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's how I feel all the time. And if I went back in a day or in my past and, and got to relive it, the things I would probably observe would be shocking to me. I'd be, How did I miss that? How did I not see that? How was I not present enough? So you really... Oh, it was you. You nailed it, definitely. Yeah.
2: Wow! Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so I'm so honoured to hear that. That's all you kind of want to do as a writer is to be that kind of conduit. And you know, like I don't want the readers to judge her. She she judges herself more harshly than yeah. she should because actually everything that Jen feels is normal. I think we yeah. all just do yes.
1: We've talked about the central premise here and the conceit that the time loop and and her living backwards. And you know, I'm I think. I heard you say in your podcast that you took a big swing, sort of delving into the supernatural and 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 in this approach to this book. So I was curious if it's a concept you've just been fascinated with, sort of this time loop, and were you at all worried that it was risky career-wise to sort of do something very different here?
2: Yeah, I think authors are always worried. Most won't say, <laughs> but I will. And I think I felt like i mean no i i had the idea while i was writing that night as i often do have the idea for the next kind of a few months earlier and i'd watched russian doll actually and i sort of thought this time loop groundhog day thing is ubiquitous in in film and tv and it it really isn't in fiction as far as i can tell especially not crime fiction and it Mm -hmm. felt like the right well I don't know if it felt like the right moment, actually, because what it felt like was I'd been given this gift from the gods and I had to write it. And it was almost like if somebody said, this is going to wreck your career, I might have done it anyway, because yeah, I had wow. to do it. That's how mm-hmm. I felt, because I knew that it was original. And an, ori- an actual original idea is so hard to come by. And I knew that I could do it. And as soon as I started a planet, it, I was like, well, it's going to be all day. The clocks go back and, you know, this is going to be the reason why. And it all just fell into place. It's the easiest novel I've ever written, which you would not think with the structure. But it's the only one I didn't delete the first draft of, which I I nearly always do. And I've continued to do after it. So yeah, it just, it was like a calling. That's how it felt. And I'm glad you know it's changed my life since i wrote it and i'm very glad i, I wasn't delusional and i didn't just think it was a great yeah. idea and nobody else thought that so <laughs> right. but yeah i mean i think right. i always think with writing and authors it, you don't realize but if you're complacent you're also taking a risk if you're rolling out who done it after who done it mm. after who done it it feels safe and secure and like this is what i know and this is what my readership knows but i think the reality i believe is You are taking a risk there because you're not doing anything new. And for Mm me, I would rather take a risk the other way and write something kind of off the wall and kind of have a mic drop moment. That's what I kind of felt my career, that's what I wanted to do at that time.
1: Yeah. Ah. That's so interesting. You're right. Not changing and staying stagnant is risky too. That's
2: yeah. Yeah. So go for the mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I wanted to do. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: also love that that happened to you at book seven. That is pretty phenomenal to, to hold out for that kind of magic.
2: Yeah. So when you've done it,
0: yeah, you could easily fall into, this is my routine. This is my pattern. This is it. This is my, who I am as a writer and just keep going this way.
2: Yeah. And, you know, listening out for those ideas is, I've just had a big idea for book nine and, I think that's the job. That's how it feels to me anyway. Like each book has to be high concept and hooky for me. So, and that one, wrong place, wrong time is probably more than the others, but it's still, yeah, it just, I felt like if you, if you stop listening out for those big ideas, then like what are you doing that's how I right yes
1: yes no you mentioned can I just ask you mentioned that you didn't delete this one and I had heard you say (laughs) that is typically your process which always frightens me I can't even imagine the people that do that I know that there are authors that do that you write a first draft and then you literally control a select all delete so how did you know this one to not do that you're just saying it was it just spoke to you knew you Like, why, why, why did you not hit the button this time?
2: Yeah, it was just the weirdest. What usually happens to me and what's just happened to me with my eighth novel is I write the first draft and I'm blushing as I write it because some of it would just never happen. And even though I've written a synopsis, even though I've got that signed off by everybody, it just in the writing of it, you know, you write, oh, and he kills her because of revenge. And that (laughs) kind of makes sense on paper. But then when you're writing it, you're like, well, I wouldn't do that. Like, you know, I try to write realism, you know, within time loops occasionally. Um, And so usually in that first draft, somewhere towards the end, I have like some sort of epiphany where I go, this is what it's about. And it will just be a single line from a character or one, like in in my next novel, it is this this police officer who says, I have to find this missing woman and I don't care if I die in the process. And that Mm -hmm. is what the book's about. And it's about lots of other things, but that is what it's actually about. And, but for some reason I have to write at least 80,000 words to get to that revelation. But with Wrong Place, Wrong Time, I just always knew it was about, without trying to spoil it, the moment that Todd turns to look at her in the past Mm. and she says she's his mother. That's what that book's about for me. And Mm. I knew it from day dot. And I feel like I discovered it rather than I wrote it. Mm. Like it was like unearthing it. So yeah, I just wrote the first draft and I actually took all of December 2020 off because I knew I'd nailed it. Yeah. Like, it was the most bizarre thing. <laughs> and I don't normally say stuff right. like that, you know. Yeah. I, I definitely acknowledge when I'm writing trash. But yeah, I just felt like, oh, cool. And then I edited from January to May, because I do still edit a lot. But I, yeah, most of it remained. Oh, wow.
0: Well, all, everything that you're talking about here, it's so interesting. The way you got the idea and then the way you executed it, it is talking to me about... Fate versus free will. It's obviously a theme, a larger theme in the book. You're not gonna see it spelled out, but it really, you know, it makes you think. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that there are things that Jen can change by going back in time, but there are some things that she cannot change, some things that are meant to be one way or the other. So m- my husband came home as I was like turning the final pages, and I was crying. I don't know why a thriller is making me cry, but my face was wet with tears. And I I won't say why, whether it's good or bad or what kind of tears they were, but it just came together. I'd love to hear your thoughts on fate versus free will. And is there one force that you tend to employ more than the other? And how do you think about those things?
2: Wow, that is an interesting question. I would say I'm mostly a rationalist, except for in writing fiction, where I am absolutely, you know, looking for magpies, and, you know, reading my tarot cards and all of that. Because for me, there is something, I don't know what it is with writing fiction, that there is an alchemy there that is not, you know, most things just make sense. And this happened because of this, or this was a coincidence or whatever. But with fiction, I feel like you know, I could easily have not watched Russian Doll and then not written this book, and I think about that a lot. And I think about all of the decisions I made along the way. And I just like, I, you know, I, I read a, a long-form article about the the specific reason why why Todd kills the stranger is a, a sort of issue. And I, I read a, an article about that. And I, you know, if I'd never done that, I the book would have a different ending. And I do I do find mysticism in it, yeah. and I sort of think about the things that might pass us by and we don't even kind of know that
0: but it's it's in your writing that you're always you're looking out for it is that yeah, right totally, hmm. totally.
2: yeah totally totally and yeah. there are there are things that have happened to me in my writing journey that have been so fortuitous and strange that you, you can't know, explain I just, it. Yeah, perfectly. exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well,
1: we're going to return to mysticism, but I do want to. I know, <laughs> strange, but we will. I want to talk about sort of your path to publication, your journey, because like both me and Corinne, you and your protagonist, you're a lawyer. So it's not just the three of us. We've interviewed, as you can imagine, so many authors that were formerly lawyers, and each of them <laughs> have shared different reasons for making the switch different ways being a lawyer has impacted their writing. Some have done it, you know, just quit and then started writing. Some have dual tracked it. And you are one that really took your time transitioning. You were working full-time as a lawyer while writing on the side, then doing both part-time. So we're curious how you reconciled these different parts of yourself in your writing and and, and how you ultimately made the, the transition
2: yeah and like most things I actually had a crisis which made me make the transition I had a very patchy health history leading up to becoming a lawyer like I got mononucleosis as you call it like yeah. badly and I had like got at least two years off. so I qualified late yeah I was like bedridden like my official diagnosis was ME like chronic fatigue syndrome it developed into although now they think Because of some blood tests I had a couple of years ago, they now think I might have had lupus, although I'm in remission. Mm -hmm. So some immune disaster, we don't really know. And because of that, I qualified really late. And because of that, I had quite a lot of convalescent time to write while off work. But then I would be on phased returns and... I had like quite a lot of downtime at weekends because I didn't really do a lot once I was back at work because I didn't want to sort of push it too much. So I would write in bed at weekends. So it took me a while to get published. Like I wrote a couple of novels to get an agent and then I had to write a couple of novels with that agent to get a publisher. So it's I have a few in the drawer, like more than most, I think. I think more
0: than most admit really- but that doesn't seem like it's the more that people talk about it, the more you come out with, Oh yeah, there's that one before the agent. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think, and it is easy to forget about them. I think because they, they just never see the light of day. So yeah. And then when I finally got the deal, I had one offer and it was from Penguin Random House, but it was a mid list advance. It wasn't as big as my salary. So I didn't feel able to do anything at that point and I didn't feel like it was a sort of slam dunk and then that book fairly unexpectedly I think to me anyway hit the bestseller list but then everybody started talking about how you've got to sustain it (laughs) and I think for quite a risk-averse person which in some ways I am I just felt like okay well I'll wait for the second but then actually it took me another two because I was just kind of Flailing around. But a good friend said to me right before I went part time, she said, Who are you though? Are you a, a lawyer or a writer? And I said, Well, I'm a writer. But it was such a simple sentiment, but it kind of rocked my hmm. world for a few weeks. Like I felt not like myself for, because I realized I had this big job, but it wasn't really what I wanted. Yeah. And then I went part time as a kind of homage to that to say, Actually, I don't care what people in the office yeah. think. And I don't care that I'll never make a partner now, probably, and all of that, because I'm a writer. And that was the first step, really. And then it was quite easy to leave right. after a year yeah. of that. But yeah, it was it was totally about identity, identity exactly. for me. Yeah. yeah.
0: And that's in your bio on the back of this book. It says, the, the first line is, you've been writing for as long as you can remember. Yeah. So I too have been writing as long as I can remember, and that is my identity. But I went... As a good practical person does, I went to law school, I practiced law. It's a secure, stable place to be and couldn't be any farther from what it's like to be a writer. To really have to motivate every day, to create your own path, to reassess constantly what that path looks like, what's worth it, how much you can give it. Because the law will just take and take and take. Writing will take nothing from you.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and writing, you have to...
0: You have to get to make yeah. your own
2: decisions and I have found there's been a, a, at least two kind of pinch points in my writing career where I've had to consciously make a decision, you know, like I left an agent and where in in law, it's just a yeah. path, you know, here you get what's called post-qualification experience, PQE, and you're like one year PQE, yeah, two years, the year, same. Yeah, year yeah. yeah we're the part. same. It's a, it's oh, a ladder. Sure. No, we, it we have year. first year, second yeah. year, third yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Same thing. You just mm. keep following the steps. Mm-hmm.
2: And it is, I think, part of why I hesitated was losing that wage and everything's mapped out for me. I had a pension like anyone's doing every day. And, you know, now I've kind of, I don't have any structure to my days often. And I'm working while I'm making the dinner because I'm thinking about a hostage situation <laughs> or whatever. And <laughs> yes. it's kind of it's kind of wild how different they really are and how... I, I don't think I thought it was possible to have the kind of life I, I have. I sort of thought you get an office job and that's right. what you do. And I'm still married to a lawyer. So, you know, I kind of see him still on that path. And then, you know, he comes in like, oh, my God, I'm really stressed. And I'm there like on a sun lounger but I am working. It's very strange. This, this is yeah. funny
1: we're all married to yeah. lawyers too. More commonality. Yes. And my very husband common. my husband very will say common. like, "Oh, this,
0: you know, the Steels blowing up blah, blah blah." I'm like, "But what do you think if the character does this?"
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what is ridiculous. <laughs> it, it, and they're both jobs and it kind of blows my mind that they are equally important. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit
0: about your success as you've already kind of touched on you really came right out of the gates with success that exceeded expectations and then somehow you've managed to top that every time. <laughs> and so I also <laughs> have no doubt that this one is going to be more of that. Can you tell us some of the highlights of of having that kind of success and the moments where you're like I can't believe this is happening to me?
2: I mean yeah, they are I do have them a few times a year where I really don't know if it's sunk in yet. Like, it's such an author cliche, but I do sometimes think I might wake up one day and be like, I was a bestseller in this dream and I could work my own hours and I'd pretty much never do anything I don't want to do. Like, it's it's remarkable. But I I will remember the call. It was a voicemail to say Penguin wanted to publish me forever just because it took so Mm -hmm. long. And I was on my third submission with that agent and... I she had never once left me a voicemail. You know, it was always emails. Like everybody rejected it. Right? She said it nicer than that. But yes. I saw this voicemail like as I was going into a meeting actually, and it was I couldn't. Oh, you know,
1: fast couldn't enough get to
2: listen to the voicemail. I was literally <laughs> like. like oh. Had my phone in my hand and I was like, "Oh my god, I've got a voicemail!" But the meeting was starting, so I had to sit there for oh, two hours, which uh, is like short should have been billable because I was very useless. <laughs> <I> <laughs> shouldn't have gone on the timesheet. I don't know if it did. But I was like, "Yeah," but I was sitting there like, uh, "I don't think I've sold my novel, but I think I might have because right. she's never left me a voicemail." And and then I went mm. down into the bowels of the building to listen to it because I wanted to be alone if it was a third rejection and it was a two bit deal with penguin oh. and hilariously ended with do you think we should accept it which <laughs> i was you know 200 rejections yeah. in yeah. so yeah probably that i think getting richard and judy over here last mm-hmm. summer was it's
0: a big deal
2: yeah like one of those kind of moments where like i took a selfie about 10 seconds after I got the email and I still got it on my phone and my pupils are like dilated on it. Like it just, my husband just says it's absurd. Like the things I come out of this office and tell him are (laughs) absurd and they are. So yeah, it is a complete privilege. Like it's just, I feel like I will die happy having had it all happen. Mm -hmm. Even if it kind of goes kaput from here, which I do everything I can to hope that doesn't happen. And I work really hard, but it's been such a pleasure.
1: Well, those are oh, some real I'm highlights. Sure. I wanted to discuss your podcast that you co-host, called the Honest Authors Podcast. In preparation for today, I actually listened to a lot of episodes. I really went down a, a black oh. hole with that. <laughs> yes. black hole. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you co-host it with a fellow author, Holly Seddon, and you guys just share the honest truth about writing and publishing. And you talk to other authors so they can share their process and. I mean, anyone who's tried to get published knows it's a bit of a black box. It's very difficult, but it's not just difficult to do, but it's difficult to to sort of know what to do. And I love this concept of you guys sort of sharing the truth. So why is it so important to you to sort of share your knowledge and experiences with, with others?
2: We started talking when Holly was just published and I wasn't yet and we had so many conversations about you know what are your initial orders and what should they be you know and that is a that is a taboo thing to say like you wouldn't say that on Twitter yeah, um, and it kind of shouldn't be I think because actually who's stocking your book and in what numbers is absolutely the most important piece of information you get in a, in a book's journey to publication And we just sort of thought, we don't know what this stuff means and we don't know what's normal and therefore probably nobody does. And we basically just started broadcasting our talks about it and it sort of spiraled and became a kind of industry thing that, you know, people listen to like it's recommended now to debut authors because we've talked about everything like foreign rights and our royalties work and you know and we don't you know broadcast our salaries or we wouldn't do anything that would get us in trouble but we try to be as transparent as you can be yeah. because it is it, there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of comparisonitis that okay. goes on with authors but also it's very clandestine so it's actually quite hard to know if you're even comparing like with like or if you're just comparing right. yourself to people that get six-figure deals in the bookseller. So, yeah, we kind of all just wanted to crack it open a bit and sort of talk about it. It's kind of why it's my solution to everything, really, is sort of <sighs> yeah. really.
0: We love that. Same same here. So, Which actually <laughs> brings me perfectly to, I have been listening to so many of your answers, and I, I'm thinking of it through the lens of astrology, because we always we're just we're just curious it's we just take stock of what signs a lot of our favorite authors and creators are and i think i did a little research are you a pisces is that correct
2: i am a pisces okay. i'm a well, very typical pisces i think I, I mean i feel like
0: everything you've said on this episode <laughs> is is support for you being a pisces and it's it's funny i'll I'll just read some of the things they the, the, the way they're described dreamy and creative, adaptable, mature, compassionate. But there is a duality to them. And I always think of the, the sign of the two fishes like kind of, you know, next to each other going different directions. And they are very sensitive to other people's energy and other people's influence. And they can take that on. It says also Pisces develop a wealth of knowledge from observation and experience. Mm-hmm. Pisces move at their own pace They trust that things are supposed to happen and will fall into place at the right time. Pisces can show support by picking up the slack, but unfortunately, many of them pick up a multitude of moving pieces, resulting in them being stretched too thin and mildly (laughs) overwhelmed. But I love this part. Regardless of how well a Pisces seems to have it together, there's a tiny piece of panic that exists within the depths of their spirit. And it's exactly this energy that leads them to be a noble person, having the bravery to push past it. I thought that was spot on. <laughs>
2: I'm glad you think so. It sounds like a very nice, a nice person, yeah. that star sign. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. perfect. But you yes. feel very uh, Pisces? Bull- oh, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. I've got an aunt who plotted out my, my specific like a sign. Chart. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. When I was born yeah. and she said she's going to be really, really creative and she's going to like make something of herself and I had that hanging over me my whole childhood and I I don't come from a creative family so it was always very interesting to me that that was sort of said. It was like a weird, like prophecy almost. It's quite romantic, isn't it? Which is very Piscean thing to say. Yes, it it (laughs) is.
1: Yes, it is. It it is is what she gave you, your chart, and sort of this idea that you could be creative. And you mentioned tarot cards earlier. We've had a lot of authors who say they're into the tarot or they use it creatively, and that seems to be sort of the last frontier for Corinne and I. We... I can't even say we dabble in it but is that something that you are into or use in your writing
2: yeah I do I use it more in the publishing like if I don't know what to do I do turn to the tarot and Mm. I think it usually your own interpretation of it tells you what to do really I think you know it will say you're always choosing the safe option and you need to do this or whatever and and what you interpret as the safe option will tell you what you really want to do anyway I think
1: oh that's fascinating oh Right, as a way to tap Was into she, your yes. intention, yeah, your subconscious. So, yeah. Ooh. And did you study oh, the tarot for this, that. or read books on no, this, not no. at all? Oh, not at all. Okay. I just. I have like one Just book look at the card. And, uh, Yeah, dabble
2: and then look at it in the book like I'm a total amateur
1: (laughs) no but that that's works (laughs) I mean I do have a book and cards and I could see how that would be enough to at least sort of maybe point you in the right direction or get you to think Mm. about it oh I love that idea (laughs) yeah we always want to hear from our authors about sort of what you're currently obsessed with or loving in terms of books or movies or TV shows just anything that sort of has your interest right now
2: Yeah, I am reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, like everyone is. Gabrielle Zevin, I just Um, got it. Yeah, Yeah. it sort of leapt onto my radar and then I I read a sample and thought, yeah, like she can really write. And it's such an interesting concept. It's about two children who meet and make a video game and kind of make it big. And it's, it's almost like a Taylor Jenkins read type exploration of the perils of fame I think like I'm not very far in Mm -hmm. but that's what I think it will be Mm. so yeah I'm really enjoying that like anybody who writes an interesting concept and who writes good prose just has me hook line and sinker so I thoroughly recommend Mm -hmm. even though I'm only about 20% in
0: Nice. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us I am gushing about this book I've already posted it all over I'm telling everyone I know I'm going to press it into hands (laughs) when it's out for public consumption here why don't you tell our listeners where to find you where are you most active on social media yeah so
2: probably Instagram and Twitter I'm at Gillian M. Author on both and you can find me on Facebook at Gillian McAllister Author if you just search that so yes I, I love hearing from readers so look me up
1: Perfect. Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on
1: social media. Tag us with your favorite books. TV shows and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at PopFictionWomen or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women.
0: For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to PopFictionWomen.com
1: and keep it complicated.